afternoon all. Good to see you on this uh, chilly evening. Uh, we have come to the end of our short series through the opening, uh, the opening section of Genesis. And um, next week, uh, John will be preaching for us. We're, we're, oh, there's John. Um, mainly with the teens in mind, just so that you're aware. Uh, looking at or answering the question, has science explained away God? And, of course, much of the Western world says, yes, science has explained away God. Uh, it is an important question. Um, so to the teens, I don't know if they all gone out to help, but uh, maybe encourage the teens to, to be here and perhaps even to invite a friend. Uh, I'm sure they will be grateful for the invitation. As Keith always says, no one takes offense at an invitation. And then uh, in two weeks' time, it's two weeks from today, we start our Advent series. Uh, amazing that Christmas is already here, but... Um, there we are. But anyway, for now, I'm looking forward to this piece of Genesis, so won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray briefly, and then we'll get into it. Well, Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that uh, you have, by your Holy Spirit, inspired this book for us to teach us who you are, to tell us what you have done, what you are still doing, what you have accomplished in Christ to tell us what the whole of our salvation entails. So, Father, as we look at it now, would you help us to see you afresh, to see you, our wonderful, saving God, anew? Encourage our hearts, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we get into today's passage, we'll just uh, want to remind ourselves of some of the big things that we've seen in Genesis so far. So first of all, who is Moses speaking to? Well, remember, he is speaking to a rescued nation, delivered from 430 years in slavery in Egypt, delivered through that dark night when God's judgment fell on Egypt, saved by trusting in God's mercy, sheltering under the blood of the Passover lamb, saved through the waters as the armies of of Pharaoh drowned in the chase, sustained in the desert wilderness, fed watered, protected, guided by God himself for 40 years. So who is Moses speaking to? To those whom God has saved. Second, what does he want them to know? Well, they have a home, a home prepared for them by God himself, that though they wander in the desert today, a forever home is theirs in the land prepared, the land promised, at peace, at rest with God. Well, third, who is this God? This God that has saved them and has made these wonderful promises. Well, he is the very God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the very God who does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. The God whose hand none can stay. He is the God who spoke space into being and filled it with stars beyond counting. And what is he like? For he is the holy God, devoted to his own glory, to the display of his glory in both judgment and in salvation. He is the holy God whom the psalmist says is a righteous judge who displays his wrath every day, who has wet his sword, bent and readied his bow for the judgment of the wicked. He is the holy God who will be glorified in the terrible coming judgment of the wicked and in the final and eternal punishment of Satan. And he is the gracious God who went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden after they'd sinned 
who covered their shame and promised a return to the garden, to the garden forever with him one day. He is the gracious God who pursued Cain, drawing him to repentance again and again and again, even after he'd murdered his brother. He is the gracious God who loved the faith of Enoch and took him home beyond the reach of death. He is the gracious God who saved Noah and his sons through the great flood. He is the God who is sovereign over all, even using his enemies to display his glory. He is the God of Shem, the God of the covenant, in whose tents, Japheth, all those who trust in him, will dwell. He is the holy God, the God of judgment and of grace. And in this story that Moses relates, this God came one day to the plains of Shinar. Well, why? What happened there? What provoked his judgment? And would he show grace again? And why does Moses tell us the story? Well, let's begin at the beginning. What exactly did happen? Well, at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 11, Moses tells us that the people of Shinar made bricks and set out to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Well, who were these people? They were those who moved east to Shinar. As Adam and Eve, you'll remember, had been evicted, evicted to the east of Eden, and Cain had gone away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So now, these people settle and advance human society in the east. In other words, away from God. This is the line of the serpent, of Cain, of Lamech, of Jabal, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, of Ham. The line of those who defied God, opposed his people, who reject his grace, and went away from his presence to wander in the east. And what did they do in the east? Well, they decided to wander no more. Instead, to establish human society apart from God. They thought their restless, wandering hearts would be settled and satisfied by impressive accomplishments. So they built a city, a city with a great tower at its center. They developed new construction technologies. The alluvial plains of southern Mesopotamia had no stone, so they developed the technology for kiln-fired bricks. And they urbanized, and God judged them for it. Why? Is God anti-technology? Well, no, we know that's not the problem. Back in the garden, he told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, that is, to work it and, well, with care for the earth and for all its creatures, to develop human technology and culture for good and right and noble ends. God was for brickmaking, and God is for good and useful technology, rightly used. So what did they do wrong? Well, two interpretations are often given um, and I think they're both right, but I don't think either of them get at the heart of the problem here. The first is that they acted pridefully, and the second is that they acted in defiance of God's mandate to fill the earth. Well, the argument for the first is that in verses 3 and 4, they say, let us make bricks, let us build a tower, let us make a name for ourselves, let us, let us, let us. They are self-absorbed, some commentators say. Well, that's surely true, but what other words should they have used? Let God make bricks for us? Well, no, of course not. Then they'd be accused of much more than human pride. They were sinful people, no doubt, just like you and me. 
But the evidence in this passage that pride was the big issue here just doesn't carry. Well, what about verse 4? Let us make a name for ourselves. Isn't that evidence of human pride, of glory-seeking? Well, again, yes, but the desire to make a name for oneself doesn't have to be bad. In fact, God promises to make Abraham's name great. Granted, making a name for yourself and God making a name for you are not the same thing. But the point is that the evidence that pride itself is the main thing here just doesn't persuade. Well, what about the second interpretation that's often put forward? Uh, Verse 4, they wanted to settle in one place and not spread out across the whole earth. Some say this is defiance of God's command to fill the earth. The command originally given to Adam in in chapter 1 and then again to Noah in chapter 9. The people don't want to spread. Instead, they want to concentrate in one place. So they're defying God. Well, again, I'm, I'm not persuaded by this. When God told Adam and Eve and later Noah and Mrs. Noah to fill the earth, it was part and parcel of a blessing to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, to fill the earth by having children and grandchildren, not by scattering the same number of people over a larger area. Again, now I'm not saying these people had no pride in their hearts, nor that they were eager to obey God. Of course they were prideful, they're sinners. Of course they were disobedient. These are the people who have gone away from the presence of God to wander and to live in the East. What I am saying is that pride and disobedience to God's creation mandate don't seem to be the main issue here in this passage. So then what was the problem? Well, it's in what they actually did. They built a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, this tower was called a ziggurat. Ziggurat was uh, sort of like a pyramid in shape, but with steps. You'll see the picture. The main features are the stairway from top to bottom and a room at the summit. Now, in the room were a bed and a table. And ziggurats were all dedicated to specific gods, specific deities of ancient Mesopotamia, and they all served basically as stairways linking heaven to earth. The gods needed to travel between heaven and earth, you see. And this was the stairway for them to do so. And the room at the top, they had a bed because, of course, the gods needed to rest and to eat. So there was a bed in there and a table. It was called the gate of the gods. It was the entrance to their heavenly abode. And at the bottom was the temple where the gods would descend to receive gifts and worship from the people. Well, what about the city? Well, urbanization itself isn't the problem. God has nothing against cities. In fact, he chooses a city, Jerusalem, to be the dwelling place for his own name. But what about this city? Well, this probably happened at the end of the 4th millennium BC, right at the beginning of urbanization in in Mesopotamia. And in the early stages of urbanization, cities were not mainly dwelling places for people. They were not residential uh, accommodations. Cities were made up of public buildings, such as administrative centers, granaries, most of which were connected with the operations of the temple. In other words, the city was, in effect, a temple complex, the center of the machine of public worship and religion. So what's going on here? The line of the serpent of Cain down through Ham has gone away from God, rejecting his grace into the east to establish a permanent city. 
the city of man in defiance of God, centered on the worship of other gods. The building of the ziggurat and the temple complex around it is human society organized, institutionalized around the worship of a particular conception of another God in the face of the one true holy God of Israel. This is not merely about human pride. This is, to be blunt, this is a middle finger in the face of the Holy One. Up to this point in history, sin has been mainly personal. Personal rebellion against God, defiance of Him, rejection of His grace. It traced down through the generations of those who opposed God, such that the great flood was a just and fitting punishment. But now, sin is institutionalized. Now human society is fundamentally oriented to the worship of other gods in direct defiance of the one true God. Now what were these gods of the plains of Shinar like? Well, the gods of Shinar, that is of Babylon, were essentially deified conceptions of elements of human nature. In other words, their gods were just like them. One scholar of Babylonian religion writes, the Babylonian gods were not themselves bound by moral or ethical principles. Let's hear that again. The Babylonian gods were not themselves bound by moral or ethical principles. The Babylonians fashioned gods in their own image. The gods they conceived uh, conceived of had human needs, needs for food, for water, for power over others, for sex, for affirmation, for vengeance. Their gods were proud, capricious, powerful, immoral, unpredictable, and needed to be appeased, paid off, bribed, satiated in hundreds of ways, and you could never really know if you'd done enough to earn their favor. So let's step back from the detail and look again at the big picture here. What is Moses saying? Chapter 11 is very evidently the conclusion of the opening section of Genesis. So what is the big picture across this whole section? Well, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. To know him, to worship him, to love and enjoy fellowship with himself, and to, his, and to enjoy his world together with him. And now, well, now man has created God in his own image to deify his own sinful appetites and thereby to worship man in defiance of the true God. It's no longer just humanity that is corrupted. Corrupted humanity has created a corrupted deity. Already morally and socially destitute, man in defiance of God set out on a path that now leads to theological ruin. And how does God respond? Well, we'll come to that in a minute, but think just first for a moment, how ought God to respond? How should the holy God respond to a middle finger in his face? Mankind whom he created in his own image to know him, for fellowship with him, the very people he blessed and prepared a home for rejected him, rejected his grace, and still he pursued them again and again and again. But they went away into the east and said, we don't need you, we don't want you, we're happy without you, and in fact, we'll just create other gods ourselves. How should 
the holy God, awesome in power and righteous in judgment, how should he respond? Well, how did he respond? By showing amazing grace, yet again, in two ways. First, he restrained human wickedness. In verses uh, 5 through to 9 of chapter 11, God confused human cooperation. He muddled up speech, dispersing those united in defiance of him into a multitude of language groups that uh, naturally impeded um, their cooperation with each other. Why? Verse 6. If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. In other words, now that they've created gods in their own likeness, there is nothing they will not do. Once God is made in the image of sinful man, there is nothing that cannot be justified. Does that make sense? Once God is just a powerful version of sinful nature, there is nothing that cannot be justified and will not be done given the right circumstances. Technology in the service of God-centered man is a very good thing. Technology in the service of man-centered man is a terrifying thing. Technology in the hands of those bound by a God-centered conscience can do much good. Technology, the ability to manipulate the natural world and its resources, in the hands of those who reject God and whose ethics are unrestrained by a consciousness of ultimate accountability to him, that's just frightening. And history overflows with examples too horrible to mention. In grace... God confused their languages and made cooperation difficult. He frustrated the progress of man-centered technology and held back the destruction man would no doubt have brought upon himself, left to his own ways apart from God. But God did more than just restrain human sin. Technology advances, some for good, some for bad, but none as good as it could be apart from the curse and none as bad as it could be apart from his restraining grace. But God did more than just restrain. Generations later, he made a covenant with Abraham. Sometime in the future, no doubt, we'll come back to Genesis and probably spend the better part of a year in chapters 12 through the end. And when we do that, we'll look in more detail at the covenant with Abraham. But for now, I just want want you to see one thing today. Remember what the fundamental sin here is at Shinar. Man has created gods in his own image. The concept of God has become totally messed up. God is no longer in the minds of man, the God of Genesis 1 and 2 and all the way through chapter 10, he is no longer the sovereign creator, omnipotent, holy, transcendent, powerful, righteous, just, and perfect in all his ways. The gods, with a small g, can be, can be manipulated just like humans. They're unpredictable, they're capricious, they're spiteful, malicious, limited, and needy. So what did God do? He restrained what human sin would achieve if left to itself, 
and he again revealed who he really is in making a covenant with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember when God created people, he created them in relationship with himself. Sin, that's what happened in Eden, Sin broke that relationship, but God determined to restore it, and the Bible tells us how he did that, ultimately in Christ. God would later solve the Eden problem, sin, but he first needs to solve the Babel problem, a false view of deity. Calvary resolves the Eden problem, and the covenant with Abraham resolves the Babel problem, and it does so by revealing what God is really like. The covenant with Abraham is God's vehicle for revealing anew who he is. Now on this side of Calvary, we know that God ultimately revealed himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. But was Christ the beginning of that revelation? No. He was the culmination of it. The law, the prophets, all the long process of revelation came through Abraham and his family, Israel. Again and again in the Old Testament, we read of how God worked through Israel to reveal himself. For example, in Joshua 4, the Israelites are told that the parting of the Jordan and the Red Sea were done so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. Again in Isaiah 49, the Lord speaks of the victory over enemies that he will give to Israel so that all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. Even when Israel are punished, it is so that the world will know who God is. Ezekiel 36, for example, speaking of Israel's punishment, the Lord says, Then these nations will know that I am the Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. The blessing on the nations that would come through Abraham and his line is that God revealed himself to the world through them. The law, the prophets, the writing of the Old Testament, and then ultimately God's own son came through the line of Abraham to reveal the Father. As Jesus himself said to one of his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Israel's fortunes rose and fell with their obedience, with their faithfulness to God. But God's goal of revealing himself to the world didn't depend on their faithfulness. Israel was a light to the nations in that they pointed to God, to his holiness, his grace, not to their own virtue. Abraham's family, of course, had much to gain by being faithful. Remember the promises of land and family. But those could be lost by unfaithfulness. They can lose the land. They can be decimated as a nation. But even then, God's revelation of himself will continue. It's not only through their prosperity that the nations will know that Yahweh is God. It's also through their punishment that the world will come to know who the true God is. And in time, there would be a new covenant a covenant to surpass the covenant with Abraham. 
a covenant written in the blood of Christ, by which not only the Babel problem was solved, but also the Eden problem was finally solved. The full punishment for sin would be paid, and relationship with God for all who trust wholly in the finished work of Christ on the cross would be restored. Now again, let's step back and see the big picture here. God created man in his image. Man responded by creating little gods, the little g, in his image. That's where chapter 11 gets us. Now God, in response, did not what he might have done, not what pure justice demanded. In grace, he makes a covenant with Abraham that in Abraham and his family, all the world will be blessed. How? By revealing through Israel who he really is. Why? Well, now consider what revelation meant to a world without it. Step back into the world before Abraham, to the plains of Shinar. This would have been mid-second millennium BC. In the ancient world, there were no atheists. Everything was attributed to the favor or the anger of the gods. With no revelation, however, there was no way to know what pleased or what angered them. An Assyrian prayer entitled, A Prayer to Every God, to Every God. In this prayer, the worshipper seeks to appease a deity from his anger over an offense that the worshipper thinks he must have committed, but doesn't know. There are only two problems. He doesn't know which God he's angered or what he's done wrong. He therefore addresses each confession he makes to the God I do or do not know or the goddess I do or do not know. And you can feel the hopelessness in his prayer. He prays, I am constantly looking for help. No one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing God, even that he does not know. This is the hopelessness of those who live in a world without revelation. And this is why the covenant with Abraham was so important. Such a blessing to all the world. We take for granted century after century of having the Bible, of having teaching. Back in that world, that didn't exist. But God had spoken. This was the promise to Abraham. This was the blessing to the nations. We don't have to guess who he is or what he's like. He has opened to us his character, his attributes, his heart. He has shown us who he is in his dealings with Israel and ultimately in Christ. As the writer to the Hebrews says, that Christ was the perfect representation of the Father. Christian, we must never lose lose the wonder of our salvation 
We will sing, as uh, I think it's a Stuart Townend song, we will sing of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, death defeated, of life without end. Yes. But what is life without end? What is eternal life? Well, in the words of Jesus himself, now this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? To know him. To know him as the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. To know him. So to a world that has put up the middle finger in the face of God, who has created gods in their own image, God responds in amazing grace. Amazing grace. Making a covenant with Abraham through which he will reveal himself through Israel, ultimately through Christ, to the world. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't have to pray to an unknown God wondering who he is or who they are, what we might or might not have done. We know because of this covenant because of the grace of God who responded completely other than how he might have, than how justice would have demanded. Now, what about you and me? What does this mean for us? Well, friend, if you don't know him, he has made the, hot, the knowledge of himself available. God is not hiding from you. God is not hiding from you. God has acted in history for thousands of years. It's all here in this book that tells us of how he dealt with Israel, how he dealt with the nations around. God is not hiding anything. God revealed himself ultimately in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He revealed himself in Jesus' life of obedience to the Father. He revealed himself on the cross showing that he is a God whose grace is utterly unreasonable. That he will do for his glory by saving sinners something so completely, extravagantly ridiculous that it couldn't be imagined or made up. God is not hiding from you. You can know him. And to the church, what does this mean for us? Well, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, let's find my place. Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 14. Uh, Speaking of Jesus, it says, So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who ultimately reveals who God is, who the Father is. For those living in darkness, those on the plains of Shinar, human society centered around the worship of false gods, Jesus is light in the darkness. But quite amazingly, right after that, just after we are told that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of light to the world, the very next thing 
Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and, and, and his brother Andrew, and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then in the next chapter, he says to them, now you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. You let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God continues revealing himself to the world even now. He did it through Israel. He did it through Christ. And he reveals himself now to the world through you and me, through us, his church. How? Well, just like through Israel... It wasn't about their virtue. It was about how God dealt with them, how God was faithful to them, how God cared for them, how God disciplined them, always to point back to himself. But now God reveals himself to the world in us. As we tell the world of Jesus, as we tell the gospel, as we do good, as we show what lives transformed by grace look like, so God is revealing to human society, organized in rejection, in defiance of God. He points them to himself through us. That is the big picture of the opening section of Genesis. And uh, I look forward to when we get through to, to the later parts of Genesis, in, uh, whenever we get there. But uh, for now, won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray as we end this series. Well, our gracious God and Father, we've seen through these uh, opening chapters of Genesis, through this history that you record for us, how you respond again and again and again, pursuing sinners in grace. Yes, there comes a time where ultimately you give people over to their sin. If they insist on having their sin, you will let them have it. But, Father, your pursuit of sinners in grace, your pursuit of us, all the times that we have defied you, all the times that we have rejected you, you have come after us in grace again and again and again, ultimately opening our hearts to the gospel, to the news of your Son, who came, who died, who rose, who ascended, for your glory in our salvation. We are the light of the world. Father, that is both an amazing thought and quite an intimidating one. But thank you, Father, that it is by your Spirit at work in our hearts. It is by your Spirit changing us to be ever more like Jesus, to day by day be transformed more into the likeness of your Son. It's not by our strength, It's not by our virtue, it's not by our goodness. It is by your spirit at work in us, transforming us ever more into the likeness of Christ. Father, would you be doing that in us, in each one of us, in each home, in each family represented here, in each home group and journey group, in our children's work, on Sundays, in all we do, would you be causing your light to shine out of us more clearly, more brightly, to a world that needs to hear who you are and what you have done. Would you be glorified in this way, Father? Amen.